I want you to know that for some of you who are old school, hardcore, long time, died in the wool Southern Baptist, that I'm probably going to freak you out this morning. Now, I'm not going to dance because that would be ugly. <laughs> ugly. But I do have a deck of cards. Now, pick yourself up off the floor. All right, it's okay. All right. I'll take the lightning strike from the Lord if some of you are worried about that. <clears throat> but I have a deck of cards because I, I, I want to illustrate something this morning as I begin the sermon that I think that we can all relate to. Because each of you right now walked into this building this morning holding a hand that's been dealt to you. And, and I can shuffle it and... Boy, that's a, that's a good, I might not even try it again. That's a good shuffle right there. And, and then we deal them out. You picture yourself at a card table. No poker chips, of course. But you picture yourself there maybe at Christmas or Thanksgiving. My family used to play cards quite a bit when we got together. And, and your hand comes to you, and you pick it up, and you try to make sure no one else sees what you've got, and you look at it, and you immediately begin to evaluate, how do I play this hand? And maybe you're the person, and like my family, where we grew up playing spades. And, and so you begin to organize your cards a little bit so that you can help now see better what you have and how best to play the hand that you've been dealt. But the truth be told, you may look at your hand as you sit there and play cards or this morning as you walk in and you say, that's the worst hand I've ever seen in my life. Can't win anything. I might as well just fold it, not even play all of us walk in with a hand that you may think, well, that's okay, or, my goodness, I'm not even sure what to do with that. What do you do with the hand that you've been dealt in life? In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to get to the portion of this particular book where the teacher in the book will help us understand how do you play the hand that you've been dealt. What do you do with it? So I want you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes over in the Old Testament, right after the book of Proverbs. As I tell you every week, if, if you are not familiar with the Bible, please do not let that stop you in any way. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes. You can look in the table of contents if you need some help on where to find that. By the way, it's raining outside, and we praise God for that. And yet those of us with a little less hair, when you walk outside after doing baptism and you come and you're in a hurry, not only are you sweating, but now there's rain pouring down my head. And so, so anyway, praise God for those of you that have hung on to your hair for a long time. In the bald brotherhood, we're united. But uh, that's right. And so, uh, so <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, I appreciate that. Sign of solidarity. See? Now, the rest of you fellas, you need it just one week. Just cut your hair short, real short, see how it feels. And, and uh, anyway, wintertime, it's kind of tough. Summertime, it's kind of nice. But here, here we are in Ecclesiastes. Now, let me kind of catch you up. If you don't know anything about Ecclesiastes or if, if maybe you are, are just joining us, we're, we're now, this will be the fourth sermon in this series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're calling it Chasing the Wind because in the New International Version, that's the phrase that this teacher who we see in, in this particular book will use on a regular basis, that basically the things of life that we do and put so much time and energy into and so on and so forth is just like chasing the wind. Now, if you were outside, in, uh, let's say yesterday, the day before, then you probably noticed that it was a little bit windy. 
And I immediately thought of this, this series and what we're talking about and so on because it really is, if you try to chase the wind, it's, it's an impossible endeavor. And that's what he's going to show us. Thank you. That's what he's going to show us um, in this book is the things that we do quite often that we do without even thinking about really do, in many cases, just lead us to this chasing the wind. So what you have here, and I've, I've recapped this each time, and I'll do this for those who maybe aren't familiar with Ecclesiastes or are just joining us for this particular series, you have two voices in this book. You've got one who's known as the teacher or the preacher. Maybe your version says it a little bit differently than that. But this person who's going to be quoted from really beginning in chapter 1 all the way through the end almost of the book, except for the last few verses of chapter 12, which is where you get the second voice, who really is the author and the person who's put together the content of the book for a specific purpose. The first voice in the book is going to give you a godless view of life. If you want to know what life is like completely apart from God, then you can look at the quotes from this teacher and you're going to, you're going to immediately notice what he says over and over that it's like chasing the wind. It's meaningless. It's pointless. If you want to understand what the real point of Ecclesiastes really, though, is all about, read the last part from about chapter 12, verse 8 through the end of the book, and you're going to get, here's why this author included all this, is to show us, yes, this is what life is like apart from God, so live your life daily by the hand of God. That's sort of the point of Ecclesiastes. So what we've seen so far is the idea that, that we're just passing through, and what if we really lived as if we believed that truth? That we're here for a short period of time and nothing in this world can truly satisfy us, so we're going to live for our Lord Jesus Christ. What if we really believed that? Last week, we looked at this teacher's search for meaning and all the different avenues that he went down to try to find meaning in life. And he ultimately said, you can't find meaning apart from God. And so that's what we've looked at. So today, we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Some verses, at least at the beginning, that those of a certain age may be familiar with. I won't make you raise your hand and ask who came of age when the birds came out with their song. Uh, and, uh, and yet I, I, I will let you know that I know the song as well. So, uh, you know, if, if that makes you feel any better, I don't know. But let's look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 3. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And then he continues, verse 9. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I've seen the task that God has given to people to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but man cannot discover the work God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them to, than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that all God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is, has already been. And whatever will be, already is. God repeats what has passed. Now let me tell you what this is not about. Right, we'll just start with that. This is not about 
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. That's not what this is about, the Epicurean way of life. That's not what this teacher and the author of the book are trying to get across to us. So when you see that, enjoy the good life, eat, drink, enjoy your labors, and so on, it's not just throw caution to the wind, do what you want, because tomorrow you may die. Now let's be honest, tomorrow you may die. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. And yet, that's not, if you look at the whole of Scripture, what this is talking about. So I I hope to help you see, really, how can we understand what this teacher is saying to us through these sort of odd words and advice that he gives us. I want to lay four things, four important and obvious observations, some groundwork about playing the hand that you're dealt. So if you've got your bulletin handy and you want to follow along, flip that thing over and you'll see some notes you can take on the back of your bulletin. I want to give you the first four things really quickly. All right, so get ready for those, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of break those apart. But they all sort of go together and talk about this particular passage. Four important and obvious observations about what the teacher is saying here. First of all, you cannot control all the circumstances of your life. You cannot control all of the circumstances of your life. Secondly, you cannot predict all of the circumstances of your life. You cannot predict all the circumstances of your life. Thirdly, you cannot explain all of the circumstances of your life. can't explain them all. And then fourthly, you cannot escape all the circumstances of your life. Now, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't know. Well, that, that stuff there, as I said, is just very obvious. But if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, you're going to be able to pull these things pretty easily as we look at this and we see what happens to us in life. So let's look back at the first eight verses. These are the circumstances of life that are told to us by the teacher. Look at verse 1 again. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. Uh, you, You see here what he's going to talk about is just the cycle, the rhythm of life, the things that we all experience. And what he'll explain in verses 2 through 8 is here's the spectrum. Here's the good, here's the bad. Here's the stuff we want, here's the stuff we'd rather avoid. But this is life, he says. There is a time, an appropriate, an appointed time for everything that will happen under heaven. So he's going to cover basically every detail of life, uh, the big, the small, and you kind of fill in the blanks there on, on what he's talking about. So this is common to human experience. You may feel as if, and one of Satan's great tricks is to make you feel as if you're the only person who's ever experienced what you're going through right now. He wants to get you over in a corner and just sort of pound on you, and that's what he does by making you think you are the only person who's ever experienced. But if you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you will see an ancient text of Scripture that just highlights this is what happens to everybody. This is life repeated in every generation for all people, this overall description of life. And what he does is he moves back and forth, as you can tell, a very repetitive poem that goes back and forth between good stuff or desirable things and maybe bad stuff or undesirable things. Now, what he's going to give us is not a way to avoid the bad stuff and only experience the good stuff. That's not what you're going to find in this particular passage. And so you may look at this and you see on the one hand there's this structure and a plan to life. And you see everything sort of flows accordingly. You have this Great structure to life. Now, if you take the other hand, which is the godless view of life, then you may live in frustration and futility because you think, what's the point of all of these things that happen? So let's look at what he says. A time to give birth and a time to die, verse 2. 
dealing with the most opposite things that we experience in life. A time to be born and a time to die. We certainly were all born at some point. And we all certainly will die at some point. The two extremes of life. So he's going to capture just in this one little sentence everything about life. Between the time you're born and the time you die, everything is common that happens to you. It's happened to someone else. And so he's, he's going to give us this now, this fill-in-the-blanks sort of thing on here's the other stuff that happens. Verse 2, the end of it. A time to plant and a time to uproot. And in verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. He's talking about here in these pairs of activities the various creative and destructive elements that we experience in life. Sometimes things are established. Maybe you've built something in your life and you say, well, you know, I remember when I put that together. And then comes the time when that no longer is structurally sound and it must be destroyed. There is a time to build and then a time that things will be torn down. Maybe you've experienced some time when, when, you, when you really put all your effort into something and your job and your career and then you retired. <laughs> there's a time to build up and then there's a time to let someone else maybe destroy <laughs> what you've done. That's the rhythm of life. Uh, they had seen cities built up and cities torn down, these people that were reading this at, at the beginning. There's a time to plant crops and a time to dig them up. If you're a farmer in our congregation this morning, then you know there is a certain time of year that is optimal for you to plant your crops and a certain time of year that is optimal for you to harvest those crops. And then you have a year like this when nothing is optimal. And you maybe missed your time to plant in the optimal time simply because you couldn't control those circumstances. And you had to harvest early because you realized if I don't get it now, it's just going to fall over and I'll have to pick it up off the ground. Might as well let the combine do that work for me. There is a time, though, that's optimal to plant and a time that's optimal to then harvest. And then he goes on, verse 4. He says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, these two obviously deal with the, the spectrum of human emotion and their public and private displays of emotion. Both joy and sorrow are certainly part of life. We probably, if we polled the audience today, would be split down the middle. How many of you are in a time of joy? And we'd take, maybe half of us would raise our hands and say, you know what, in my life right now I'm experiencing some great joy for whatever reason. And then we could poll and say, how many of you are experiencing great sorrow? How many of you feel like it's, it's time to mourn? And you could say yes. How many of you say it's time to dance? And you'd maybe raise your hand after you got out of church. <laughs> I, I know you. But you understand the, the emotion that comes with this, both private and then displayed. Sometimes we feel like all we want to do is cry, and other times we could literally dance before the Lord because we're so happy. David himself did that, by the way. There are certain kinds of dancing that are obviously very biblical. I won't demonstrate, but yeah, I'd like where you stick around a little bit. But there are times when joy cannot simply be contained. It has to be expressed. And times when sorrow can't be contained either. And the tears flow. Then he says in verse 5, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. These pairs here dealing with friendship and disagreements. Rocks, by the way, in ancient times were, were thrown. And this is what many of the people that I studied this week maybe believe that this is talking about. Rocks were thrown into an enemy's field to keep it from being able to be planted and harvested. You want to destroy your enemy, take away his food. 
And so rocks would be thrown. And then if rocks were thrown, then, then the productive thing to do is to go and pick them up and build something with it. Thank you for all the rocks. We'll go build our fortress now. And, and that's the way. There is a time to throw stones, a time to gather stones. There are times when, it's, when friendship is present, and then there are times when enemies are present. There's a time to embrace someone, and then a, a time other times when you just know <laughs> it's not the time for that. And then verse 6, he says there's a time to search and a time to count as lost, a time to keep, a time to throw away, dealing with our possessions and how we relate to them. There's a time when things are gained and a time when things are lost, a time when things are kept and a time when they're thrown away. Maybe you've gone through your house before and you realize it's just time to get rid of some of this stuff. I saw that hoarder's show on television. I'm not going to be that person. I'm getting rid of my stuff. And then there's other times when you say, no, I'm going to hang on to this. There's a time to keep it. We just see the rhythm of life here. And then he says in verse 7, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to, to love, verse 8, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Just appropriate times for certain things. Tearing and sowing here may represent uh, when folks went to a funeral and they mourned in those days, they tore their clothes. And then after a time, of course, you move on with life and you sew those clothes back together, symbolically saying it is time to move forward. There are times when it's appropriate to be silent. There are folks who I've dealt with before who simply don't need you to say anything. They just need you to sit there with them. You know what I'm talking about. During a very difficult time in their life, they're not looking for answers. Or maybe if they are, they certainly don't want to just hear a bunch of stuff you're trying to come up with. They just need somebody to be with them and to be silent. There's a time to be silent. And then there's a time to speak. Now, the Bible has a lot to say, of course, about the judicious use of words. Be wise in how you use your tongue to produce words because it's better sometimes simply to be silent. What is the old saying? Better to appear a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Is that right? You know, there are times to be silent and there are times to speak. Certainly that's the rhythm of life. And then he says there's a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. Love and hate here are personal emotions. He's not saying it's absolutely there's a, there's a time you should hate this particular person. We know the biblical ethic is love, not hate. We understand that. But he's talking about in life there are times when there is love present, times when there is hate present, times on a national level when we are at war, times when we are at peace. And so he covers in these verses all the circumstances of life experienced by all people. Now we could add maybe a few to those, maybe more specific to our time. If you're married, there's a time to argue and a time to say, yes, dear. You know what I'm saying? It's just, okay. Uh, there's a time to rush and then a time to slow down. We've seen that. There's a time to be stressed, which seems to overwhelm most of us, and a time to relax. We could add some things to this as you think of the rhythm of life. Now, I want to go back to these four foundational observations, what the teacher shows us that you can't control, can't predict, can't explain, can't escape all of the circumstances of your life. And I want to look at the things that you cannot control based upon what we see here in verses 2 through 8. Now, we like to think and we like to believe that we have gotten to where we are based upon only our talent, our hard work, our seizing of opportunities, and so on and so forth. And to some degree, that's true. To some degree, you have really worked and produced much of your success. But there are also several factors that none of us had any control over whatsoever. You did not choose to be born. Think about it. 
You are here by no choosing of your own. You did not choose to be born. You did not choose when you would be born. You may bemoan the fact that you were born at the time you were born. You did not choose the family you would be born into. Whether it's good or bad, whether your folks were married or unmarried, whether you knew your parents or didn't know your parents, whether you're adopted or not, you, you didn't choose the family you'd be born into. You didn't choose where you'd be born. You know, I happen to be born and, and raised uh, in the greatest city of the greatest state in our great union. Just, uh, just so you know, this is a Louisville Cardinals tie. The game is at 2.30 today. There is a reckoning that will happen, and I'll have to eat all this stuff if Kentucky wins, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy it now, all right? Just, yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, I didn't choose to be born in Louisville. I didn't choose to be born in Kentucky or in the United States or in 1977. I didn't choose to be born where and when and to whom I was born. You didn't choose any of that stuff. And, and yet those factors, unless you are crazy, you recognize how much they shape who you are. But you didn't choose. You didn't control any of that stuff. What's interesting, I read a book this week by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. And if you want a really interesting read, I'd encourage you to pick this one up. It's called Outliers. Outliers by Ma Malcolm Gladwell. It is a really fascinating read, a piece of research that he did, and he calls it Outliers, the story of success. And he opens his book by saying that many of the factors that contribute to our success, we have no control over whatsoever. And he talks about the things I just mentioned, when and where and to whom you were born and so on. And he, he highlights a junior national hockey team from Canada. And the study that he did revealed that the overwhelming majority of the hockey players on this particular elite all-star team were born in January, February, or March. And immediately they said, that's a little strange. Why would the majority, vast majority of these players be born in January, February, or March? You know when the cutoff date is for ages in national hockey in Canada? Take a wild guess. It's January so you know what those boys who were born in January and February and March were? The oldest. And you know what being the oldest made them? The biggest. And you know what the biggest made them look like they had the most talent because they were physically bigger than everybody else? And you know when they start selecting all-star teams and the elite clubs that they're going to play in, you know who they pick? The kids who look the best. And who were they? The kids who were the biggest, who happened to be born earlier. And you know what then the elite teams get? Great coaching and lots of game time. And so you know what great coaching and lots of game time improves? Your skill. And you know what happens when your skill improves? You get promoted even more. And much of their success has to do with how hard they worked, and Gladwell brings that out. But much of it was just simply because the cutoff date in Canada is January 1st, and they were born fairly close to it. We cannot control all the circumstances of our lives. There are things that are in your life right now that you simply cannot control. You did not wish for them, you didn't choose for them, and yet there you are. You cannot control every circumstance of your life. And then the second thing, of course, was you can't possibly predict all that's happened in your life. You say, I didn't see that coming. I mean, how many of us this morning could look back over the last six months to a year and say, there's no way, I, I could have never predicted, good or bad, I could have never predicted that would happen. Didn't see that coming at all. 
There's a, a stress scale that I looked at this particular week, the Holmes and Ray stress scale. Maybe some of you have seen this before. These, these two psychologists took opportunity several years ago, and they made a list of things with some, some corresponding scores to say, this is, if you would have these things happen to your life, it scores, say, a 100 or a 75 or whatever it may be. And if you add those numbers together, and over the last year you've had numbers that add up and events that add up on their score to, say, 300 or better, you are in for a nervous breakdown. I mean, it is, is you are hanging on by a thread. And so some of the things, this is interesting to look at, these are things that most people could not have predicted would happen when and where they did. The death of a spouse rates 100, the highest one. Some of you experienced that in the last year. Divorce, a 73. Marital separation, right behind that, a 65. The death of a close family member, 63. Major personal injury or illness, a 53 on the scale. Getting married is a 50, a stressful event. I think my wife has left... Uh, to go with the kids, so I just say amen. <laughs> we record everything, though. See, that's the problem. She'll listen to the sermon. But you, marriage can be a very stressful thing. A 50 on this scale, fired or laid off at work, a 47. Retirement, something supposed to be great, is on the stress scale, a 45. Because of the change that it brings. Pregnancy is a 40. Gaining a new family member, right behind it, a 39. A major change in financial state, a 38. A major change in the number of arguments with your spouse, 35. I'm not going to get into that one in this sermon. Foreclosure on a mortgage or a loan is a 30. A son or daughter leaving home. Some of you are saying, all right, yeah, I got rid of them. No, it's a, it's a 29. I'm going to go through that four times. Kidding me? It just adds up to 100 right there. I'm done. Outstanding personal achievement, which you think would be so wonderful, is a 28 on the stress scale. Because why? Now there's more expected of you. Pressure. The list goes on and on. They also created a list for those who are not yet adults. Say so you're not living on your own yet. You're not out of school yet, whatever it may be. The death of a parent rates 100. Getting married as a non-adult, so you're under 21, is a 95. Isn't that something? The divorce of your parents is a 90. Getting married is more stressful than divorce of your parents. It's interesting. A change in your acceptance by your peers is a 67. The marriage of a parent to a step-parent is a 63. Parents, I don't know if, if that's your case, if your family is a, a step-family, but understand the tremendous impact that it has on your children. Failure to make a grade in school is a 56. Not making an extracurricular activity or team is a 55. Breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend is a 53. Beginning to date is a 51. Some of you have kids that are close to that age. It's a very stressful time for them. You may be annoyed by it, but they are living it, and it's a tough deal. I mean, those are the things you cannot predict. I mean, you could add to the list kids getting sick when you have something else you're trying to do. We had two kids sick this week. You know, we had other things to do. You've experienced that. Having to grow up too fast. Some of you had early responsibility you weren't ready for. Parents died or left. And here you are left to raise your family or get a job or whatever it may be. Life doesn't wait till you're ready and prepared for the things it throws at you. You can't predict all those things. And then if someone were to ask you to explain your circumstances, all the things that are currently going on in your life, and why you do this or that, you would probably have a little trouble explaining everything that's happened to you. Well, I, I, don't, I don't really know how I got to where I am. 
this happened and then this happened, but I'm not sure exactly how all that went together and produced the life that I now experience. You know, I really don't have any idea what to say about that. I, I don't know how to explain what's going on. I, I, I don't know why I do these things. No, I, I don't fully understand the reasons why certain things must be done at certain times and why the rhythm of life is the way it is, but I just know that's what I have to do. It's like planting and harvesting. You think about it, if you're a farmer, you, you did not set up when it's best to plant or when it's best to harvest, but you better do it at those times. Sometimes that's just life. And no matter how hard you try, you cannot avoid or escape the circumstances that people have dealt with for thousands of years. You can't escape a drought when you need rain or rain when you just need a little sun. You, you can't escape the new stage of life that you are about to enter or that you're experiencing right now. You can't escape the major changes and adjustments that come with each new stage of life. You can't escape your kids not doing what you want them to do on a small scale or a bigger scale. You can't escape, parents, your kids growing up. Now, I'm going to tell you what. Writing that and saying that isn't what I want to write or say. I don't want that part of my notes about kids growing up. I just want them to stay small. My kids are going to grow up, and it's inevitable. Some of you have noticed that. We've been here four years, and you think, oh, my goodness, how big are they? You can't escape the problems that you deal with right now. You can't escape eventual illness and death. There's no way out of those things. There's only through those things. You can't control, predict, explain, or escape all the circumstances of your life, so what will you do in response? I mean, now that could be a really depressing sermon. <clears throat> you just go home and stew on it. Can't control it. Can't predict it. Can't explain it. And you can't escape it. Praise God. Let's all celebrate and sing a closing hymn and then go out and kind of mope around the next week. That, you, you, how will you respond? You can respond sort of in, in the beginning here how the teacher responds. Look at verse 9. What does the worker gain from his struggles? A rhetorical question. What's the point of it all? The hand you've been dealt doesn't feel like a winner. The deck is stacked against you. You can fold and give up. It's an option. You say, I'm done. You can play it out in frustration and discouragement, being angry and stressed out. And some of you, if, if I were to take you through that little chart, you are off the charts on the stress scale. And you are frustrated and angry. But I'll tell you this, that responding from your human nature alone typically only results in detrimental aspects of life. Your life may now, because you're responding only in your human nature, be filled with hopelessness, with frustration, with getting upset at work when you don't want to, with impatience when you're just standing in line somewhere, or maybe things with your children. Some of you now are having more frequent arguments than you've ever had. Some are getting upset at work, and you think, that's not me, that's not who I am. Why am I doing this? I'm putting myself in a difficult spot. Some of you have physical pain, neck, shoulder, back pain because of what you're experiencing, how you're responding to it. Some of you watch the news and you read about world events, and you just get angry about what's going on. Some of you are road ragers, though we'd never admit it. That's not you who was tailgating me the other day. And that's not me who happened to turn on the windshield washer stuff, right? When you happened to be tailgating me to get you to back up. 
We're not road ragers in any way. We certainly wouldn't get upset when we're driving, would we? Now, don't go and do that stuff. Some have stress-related headaches. Some feel like you have no time to stop and deal with all this. You're having trouble keeping your anger and your hostility under control. Some of you have become time wasters because of how you're responding to situations that you can't control or predict. Some are just always in a hurry, never seeming like you can catch up feeling like there's not enough time in the day. Some have given up and you're apathetic about life. I just don't care anymore. I want to give up. Some are stoic, thinking if I just pretend as if this doesn't affect me, then it really doesn't affect me at all. I'll just stick my fingers in my ears or have someone cover my eyes and it won't really be going on. Some are continuing to keep on trying what you cannot do, which is to control and to predict and to explain and to escape. You can respond all those ways, or you can use the ace up your sleeve. The ace of spades in a game of spades is the card that trumps it all. you got the ace of spades. You can basically trump any hand or any card that's played right there. You can use the ace up your sleeve, which he gives us beginning in verse 11. The first part of that is that you can truly walk with God. When you truly walk with God, look at verse 11. He says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. You can trust that He is in control and that His timing is perfect, even though it may not make sense at first. The second part of verse 11, He says, But man cannot, He has put eternity in their hearts, but man cannot discover the work God has done from beginning to end. You can realize that you have only a limited understanding of eternal things. Yes, you have a desire to get there and a desire to understand those things, but only God sees His entire plan for you and for the world. We are in one small little part of it right now. When you walk with God, you begin to realize and to trust that He has the full view. Verse 12 is interesting. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice. Rejoice in all this stuff that's going on. That rejoice there is simply to make the best of life as you find it. And then he says, and to enjoy the good life. You know, the good life comes, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, only from him. He says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Talking about Satan himself, the ruler of this dark world. And he says, but I have come that they may have life, and life to the fullest, life in abundance, the Gospel of John talks about eternal life, but do you know when he says eternal life actually begins and can be experienced? Here on earth when you give your life to Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait, though heaven will be incredible and beyond our imagination. You don't have to wait to experience the blessings of heaven, the good life that God has promised with His Son living inside of you. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven. That can be experienced beginning now. And then he says, verse 13, is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. You can receive the gift that God has given you in simple things like food and drink and enjoyment of your efforts, taking delight in the things you have, not focusing on the things you don't. And then he says in verse 14, I know that all God does will last forever. There is no adding to it, no taking from it. God works so that people be in awe of him. You can relax and trust in the fact that God is in control, that his plans are permanent, they are effective, they are complete, and they are secure. And if you are in Him, then you are as well. No circumstance of your life can stop what God is doing. As you truly walk with God, you will then be surprised by joy. 
When you truly walk with God, you will be surprised by joy. Not because you're trying to understand all of life anymore. Not because you're trying to control it or explain it or predict it. Not because you're smiling and pretending that life really isn't happening to you. But because you're living life from the hand of God, being guided by His Spirit each and every day. And you are receiving the things that He has given you. And you're no longer focused on yourself, but you're focused on living life oriented to Jesus Christ and in service of others. Because you enjoy the natural beauty of the world around you and have a deep appreciation for God's creation. Because you're taking advantage of the opportunities that come your way and doing the best you can with them. And serving the Lord with a full and whole heart. Because you're making the most of every moment. Wherever you are, you're all there. And you'll experience joy when you do those things. Because you're accepting your daily routine and your circumstances, not as some terrible obligation, but as an opportunity God has given you to display the light of Jesus Christ wherever you may go. Your attitude is then becoming one of gratefulness instead of one of entitlement. You can experience and be surprised by the joy that God brings when you truly walk with Him. And even when things happen that you can't control, you can't explain, you can't predict, you can't escape, you can learn to respond to them, yes, with honest emotion, but you can learn to trust in the Lord at the same time, which means to continue to walk with Him and do good as a result even of those things. I found an article this week in the Murray State News about a young man that I met one time. And it reads like this. On October 2, 2010, Scott and Brenda McGurk, their lives completely changed when their youngest son, freshman baseball player Thomas McGurk, died in an automobile accident in Murray. Now, for some, that stops you right where you are. I cannot imagine. I literally cannot imagine what it is like to lose a child. I cannot. Only those who have experienced it can understand that at all. You have a, a choice then in that moment when something happens in life, whether it's something specific like this or something else that you can relate to this, as to then how will you experience life as a result. Now it says they want to change the lives of others. The McGurks have established the Thomas McGurk Memorial Scholarship as a way to memorialize their son's determination and spirit by, by assisting young athletes in obtaining an education at Murray State. His dad said this, I wasn't ready to stop being his father, so this is something I can do that makes me feel connected. Finding himself living in the sad reality of life without his son in a place where most parents would cut the ties that stir up the painful reminders of their loss, Scott McGurk continues to deepen his relationship with the school his son attended for less than two months by making a yearly trek to Murray and keeping in contact with many of his son's friends. As his son's legacy lives on through the Memorial Scholarship, McGurk remains thankful for Murray State and the ties it holds to his son. I prefer, he said, for Thomas's memory to live on through the family, friends and teammates, through his family, friends and teammates, and this is just a tool to perhaps accomplish that goal. Thomas McGurk was a believer in Jesus Christ and now lives with Jesus in heaven. His dad was not ready to stop being his son, but he has been, and I can tell you from talking with him, surprised by joy even in the most unbearable circumstance you can imagine. 
And when you walk with God, you can and you will be surprised by joy, no matter the circumstances. And finally, you will also be overwhelmed with awe. When you walk with God, you will be surprised by joy and overwhelmed with awe, no matter your circumstances. Verse 14, look at it with me as we close. I know that all God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. So they will recognize who he is and who they are, and they will in turn worship him as the one true living God. All because we are dependent upon him, even for our next breath. All because his ways are far beyond what we can understand. All because we recognize how much God has blessed us by how much grace he has given us. When you truly walk with God, you will be surprised by joy and overwhelmed with awe, no matter your circumstances. In your bulletin, on the inside, there's a little insert. It's a little white piece of paper, front and back. I'm going to give you some homework. Actually, what I want to give you is, I hope, something that will help you this week. That will help take the truth of what we've seen in the Scripture today and apply it directly in a very tangible way to your life. So you've got the choice as to whether you want to use it. It's up to you. But what you'll see on here is a space for each day, beginning tomorrow, all the way through Saturday, on the front and back. And here's what I'd like for you to do to begin to put this into practice. Is on Monday, tomorrow, you simply list, here are the circumstances I could not control, cannot explain, could not predict, and cannot escape. Whatever it may be, and you may need more room than this. This is just a guide. But pick something and say, here's my circumstance, and here's my initial response. Here's what I want to do in my human nature. And then throughout the day, begin to see and look for ways. How has God surprised me with joy even in the midst of that? And how have I been overwhelmed with awe for who God is and who I am not, even in the midst of that? And each and every day begin to take and apply the scripture that we've seen. To say, Lord, these are my circumstances, but I want you to overwhelm me with awe and surprise me with joy. And this matters for your life for your marriage, for your family, for your job, for your school. It really does matter. The person you are Monday through Saturday really does matter. And So my prayer is that you will take your circumstances, lay them at the feet of God and say, you have it, you are in control, I am not. And you please, Lord Jesus, surprise me with joy and overwhelm me with all. We're going to close by singing a, a song that I've asked Danny and Randy to lead for us called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I think it's fitting that we close with this because tomorrow what we'll need to do is to turn our eyes upon Jesus. To look full in His wonderful face. And then what does the song say? And the things of earth, the circumstances you can't control, predict, explain, or escape, will what? Will grow strangely dim. Strangely, surprising. Strangely dim. In the light of His glory and His grace. So I'd like for you to consider how it is that God wants you to respond. Is it in total submission to Him, Lord Jesus, I give you my life? Is it in asking Him to take your circumstances and then surprise you with joy and overwhelm you with all? As we sing this song, make that your prayer. Lord Jesus, surprise me and overwhelm me 
Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you to do those things in the midst of our valley, in the midst of our circumstances. Please, Lord Jesus, surprise us with joy and overwhelm us with awe as we walk with you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that this song would truly be the prayer of our hearts and the commitment that we make this week to turn our eyes upon Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.